When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, music nerds. Welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Howdy folks, and welcome to episode 46 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. My name is Steve Dawson, and I'm fitting this episode in while on tour. I'm out in Western Canada right now. Today's episode is my conversation with the incredible piano and organ player, Mr. Reese Winans. First of all, just a heads up that I'll be playing in Vancouver tomorrow night. Vancouver is my old hometown, as some of you know, and while I've been back many times since I moved to Nashville about four years ago for sessions and some annual shows that I'm involved in, it's the first show I've done there of my own for quite a few years. So if you're around Vancouver, I hope you can make it. Also, uh, a heads up to my Vancouver listeners that every year in October I spearhead a, an annual show where we take an album, a cool album, and reimagine it with a, a whole bunch of guests. We don't recreate it, we more take on the album and do different interpretations of all the tunes. This year we're doing it again the weekend of August 13 and 14 in West Vancouver at the K Meek Theatre. And we're doing the John Hammond album Wicked Grin as well as some other cool Tom Waits stuff, a little emphasis around the Mule Variations era of Tom Waits. And the catch is that this year we'll actually have John Hammond there as part of the show. And we'll also have David Hidalgo from Los Lobos and a few other guests, including Jim Burns and Jill Barber. Uh, So any Vancouver peeps, please come and check it out. It'll be a one-time thing, October 13 and 14. I'll be leading the band and playing a few tunes. Should be a hell of a night. On to this week's show. Uh, Reese Winans, as many, many of you know, was the keyboard player in Steve Ray Vaughan's band Double Trouble. He joined the band during the sessions for Double Trouble's third album, Soul to Soul. And he was in the band right up until Steve Ray Vaughan's death in 1990. 
He's got an instantly recognizable sound, which is it's a really tricky thing to accomplish on the piano or organ, but he does it on both instruments. But the other thing about Reese Winans that not as many people know is that he was an important player in the formation of the Allman Brothers Band as well. Meeting Dickie Betts and Barry Oakley in Florida in the late 60s, they did a ton of jamming and playing together and developing some cool chemistry. Dwayne Allman showed up on the scene and formed a band with these guys that would become the core of the Allman Brothers Band, constantly jamming and playing free outdoor concerts around where they were in Florida. And just as they were gelling and doing a bunch of great playing, Dwayne informed everyone that his little brother, Greg, would be joining them. Uh, he was out in Los Angeles um, sort of pursuing a, a solo career at the time. And at that point, Reese knew that his days as the keyboard player in that band were numbered. So sure enough, they went on to do their thing, and Reese moved on to Austin, Texas, and became a sought-after musician with tons of great Austin artists before landing the gig that we all know him as, which was the keyboard player with Steve Ray Vaughan. After that, Reese moved to Nashville in the early 90s, where he again enjoyed a really successful stage of his career as a session player. He played on a huge amount of country albums through the 90s and 2000s. And these days, Reese is out on tour again as the keyboard player in Joe Bonamassa's band. Um, I mentioned Reese's identifiable sound, and shortly after moving to Nashville, I was sitting in with a band down in Printer's Alley in Nashville, and it was a bluesy band with some great horn players and a rhythm section and an organ player who was standing, or he was playing behind me where I was standing, and I couldn't see him, and I hadn't met him before walking on stage, and I hadn't really looked behind me, but the first solo he played, I immediately recognized as Reese Winans. It was totally uncanny, actually. And sure enough, turned around and there he was ripping it up as he frequently does around Nashville when he's not out on tour. It was a real thrill to meet him that night because the Steve Vaughan band was it was a huge part of my musical upbringing, and he was also the first real concert that I ever saw in Vancouver. I guess it was in 1986. Uh, anyway, that's my little Reese Winans story, and I'd also like to shout out uh, to Kevin McKendry, who's also an incredible keyboard player, and he is the one who got me in touch with Reese in the first place. Uh, so thanks to Kevin for uh, helping put this together. As always, folks, you can connect with me and the show at stevedawson.ca. You can make comments there. And if you feel so inclined to contribute with a financial donation, you can do it there as well. And please, if you haven't done so already, go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. That helps me and helps the podcast out. It's free, helps get the word out there. And also, if you feel like reviewing the show uh, on iTunes, that apparently really helps get the placement up as well. So I would appreciate that. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sonebender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. All right, folks, let's do it. Let's go to my conversation with Reese Winans. I listened to the the podcast of uh, Lloyd Maines, my old oh, friend cool. Lloyd Maines. Yeah. Uh, I the, whatever. Oh, yeah, right. You guys would know. He's, uh, um, he's some storyteller, isn't he? He is. He's great. Yeah. And we had a chance to work on that Joe Illy stuff. 
I did just a couple of shows with him, but he and Jesse Taylor, when they were in that band, those yeah. two guys were just a force of nature, yeah. man. And it was it was all these terrific arrangements and part worked out parts. And was uh, he playing his steel through the Leslie at that point? You know, I, um, I don't re- remember the Leslie, but I do remember okay. some sort of wild fuzz tone, <laughs> and uh, and it, it was like a, a, a double guitars that reminded me of their harmonies reminded me of the Almond Brothers a yeah. little bit, yeah. but it was more untamed and right. uh, and uh, of course with Jesse, you know it's going to be untamed because yeah. uh, you can't hold that guy back. Yeah, what records? Very much the must have not have got a lot of. Oh, okay. So this is going back to like 1980 or? Yeah, 70s. Okay. I was still working with uh, Jerry Jeff Walker at that time. Yeah, so I, I'm curious about that period in your life because I, I want to talk to you about some of the early stuff, of course, as well, because that's an era that is actually really under-reported. Um, <laughs> but that era, like pre-Double Trouble and post your dealings with the Almonds and the Second Coming and all that stuff, there's like an era where I don't really know what you were up to, but I know there was Jerry Jeff Walker and Joe Ely. So were you in Texas at that point or were you still in Florida or what was, where were you? Well, upon leaving um, Jacksonville and the second coming and the, um, um, the, uh, the second second coming, yeah. the new second coming and uh, what other bands I had there, uh, I was kind of uh, in a, area of what do I do now? I uh, didn't have any money. You know, uh, um, my wife at the time was uh, under the weather. And uh, and so I went back to uh, Clearwater, I mean, to Sarasota, where I lived at the time. Okay. Got a job in an orange juice factory. Really? Uh, yeah. And I was, uh, was working a full shift during the day and then going out and playing in bands at night. Okay. And just doing everything I could to make some money. Yeah. Got a call from uh, Dwayne Allman, who said, "Do I? Uh, he, a friend of his is putting a band together, and uh, he rec- he had recommended me. Uh, it was this guy named Boz Skaggs, who had just right. done this record in Muscle Shoals with Dwayne. Sure, yeah. And he lived in Boz lived in Macon at that time, or was in Macon recording. I think he lived there. Was there? I don't know. Okay. He, uh, but he was going to go to San Francisco. Did I want to go to San Francisco and be in his band? And I had nothing going on at the time. And San Francisco was a pretty exciting place. So I went out yeah. to San Francisco in 1970 uh, to work with Boz. Oh, okay. And uh, that's where I met. Uh, and this is like just after his first record came out. We, we promoted his first record. Uh, wow, we we played uh, uh, Loan Me a Dime yeah. at, all the, uh, at all the clubs around San Francisco. Uh, Look What You've Done to Me. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the, uh, what is it? Get Up and Make My Life Shine. Right. All those songs. Sweet Release, which was my, my favorite That's song. A killer al- but you didn't play on that album. So you came in Did after not play on the record. No, it was all Muscle uh, Barry Beckett right. and... Um, Spooner, maybe, uh, or something. Uh, I think it was Barry, it could have been Spooner. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it was Roger Hawkins and David Hood. Yeah. Those guys yeah. on on that record. Right. And so that was fun playing those songs. Um, um, my wife at the time did not like San Francisco. Oh. She didn't like she didn't like that uh she was from Florida. She was from Florida. We were I was living in this really sleazy hotel. <laughs> On uh, bro, uh, with some street up there, I can't remember the name, but the the name of the hotel was the Swiss American Hotel, famous for <laughs> where this it sounds uh, sleazy. Just this the name comedian of it. Uh, uh, committed suicide. Oh uh, my God. It was a very famous place for that. Okay, and um, 
Um, so she left and went back to uh, live with her friends and uh, and left me out there uh, to experience the joys of San Francisco, which there were many, yeah, uh, especially musical. I got to see uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company and Santana and the Grateful Dead. Uh, so I was there when Miles Davis played it, uh, recorded it at live at the Fillmore. Right, yeah. And so I uh, felt like it was kind of an educational process. Yeah. Were you right in there in that scene? Like, was Boz sort of part of... Boz was That's, the local scene, just like, okay. uh, but he was not, I mean, we played the film more, but I didn't think that he was on the same level as the Jefferson Airplane and, right. the, and the Grateful Dead and yeah. those other bands seemed like they were at a higher level than him, okay. than him at that point. And were you hanging out with those guys, like as friends and stuff as well, like like the Dead and the Airplane and those kind of, like the local no. scene? No. Okay. No, I was hanging out with uh, uh, the guys with Boz's band. There was a sax player that I became friends with, Martin Fierro, uh-huh. and uh, and our drummer, George Rains, who I, who uh, uh, later moved to Austin, and I we became, we renewed our friendship there. Okay. A guy named Doug Som, who lived out yeah, there. Sure. Powell St. Oh, John. Doug Som lived in San Francisco then? Doug Som lived in San Francisco then. Oh, okay. Um, uh, Powell St. John, another writer. And um, oh, it seems like there were some other folks back then. You're talking about a long time ago. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's about all I can recall. Uh, That's a good crowd. Uh, it was a nice group of people, though. Yeah. Eventually, I was really lonesome and missing my wife. And right. so I quit right. Boz's band. How long were you in that band for? Like About a year. Okay. About and, a year. Was, were you touring and stuff? Or was we, it- were, we were touring around San Francisco. Okay. We, we made a trip to Hawaii. We made a trip oh. to Reno. Uh, I wasn't but not sure. Like, he wasn't like nationally. No. And, and because point. of that, I, I wasn't really sure if he was gone anywhere. I mean, he was talented. Yeah. And, uh, and, and had cool songs. Our band was good, but uh, I just didn't see where this was going. Okay. You know, it was, a, it was kind of like. He sort a, of didn't take off for like a couple albums, right? Not. Well, I mean, they, they did a, a record of us playing live. Uh-huh. There's, I've just realized that. Uh, on iTunes, I uh, listened to a little bit of us playing at the Fillmore. Oh. Of course, he went on to have a fine career. Yeah, yeah. And, so uh, you never played on any of his studio albums? No, no. Okay. In fact, I've never really talked to him. Oh, really? After I quit the band. He, was he pissed at you? He wasn't thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I thought that he would understand what was going on, yeah, man, you know? You and, go. uh, yeah. and, uh, and I've tried to contact him on more than one occasion. And uh, uh, what's the word? Crickets. Really? <laughs> wow, that's too bad. You'd think he'd bury the hatchet. Yeah, 40 well, years I mean, later, it'd be man. nice to say hello to the guy, you know, yeah. and tell him congratulations on his career. And, uh, yeah. and uh, I mean, I, I buy his records. I still think that song, Sweet Release, is one it's of the killer. great songs that's never been covered by anybody and, yeah, yeah. and should be. To have a uh, try to get back together with my wife, I, I joined a group of guys uh, in a show band and mm-hmm. we traveled around up and down the East Coast. Uh, playing uh, playing clubs uh, for yeah. two or three weeks at a time, right? And uh, which is something that I, that I had done before that. before the Almond Brothers and yeah. and during you know breaks of that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so you you were lit back to living in were you in Sarasota? Uh, we ended up in Sarasota, and okay. uh, and I knew that marriage was doomed. It was just oh, not really? just not going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Did you got have a, kids or anything at that point? No. Okay. No. Uh, uh, got a club gig. She got a gig there as a waitress. And um, 
it's kind of a, the story is that there was a, it was a four piece band. We were all married yeah. when we started that house gig. Two uh, two years later, we're, each one of us was divorced. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and uh, uh, yes, and uh, and I got the offer. Uh, yeah, I got the offer to go to uh, Austin uh-huh. with a, a friend of mine. Called me up. Dave Perkins called me up. Uh, uh, who was in a, a guitar player uh, with Vassar Clements, who had oh. just, Jerry Jeff Walker had just hired Dave to put a band together. Dave called me and said, do I want to come to Austin okay. and play with the Jerry Jeff Walker band? Like move to Austin. Move to Austin. There. So I went out there. That and probably felt pretty appealing. And took a point. look at that place. Uh, yeah. And uh, Austin was still small at that point. Yeah. The largest uh, building in the city was the Capitol. Right. Um, had about a hundred thousand people. Wow! Uh, but there was music all over the place. Which so it, even at that point, there was a scene in Austin. There was very much of a scene in okay. Austin. There was a blues scene. There was a outlaw country scene. Was Antones uh, going yet? Or that oh was, yeah, it was. Yeah, Antones okay. uh, had a, a place. The original club was on Sixth Street. Yeah. Yep. And uh, one of the first things I did was go down there with a friend of mine. We saw Sleep at the Wheel, okay. and uh, nice. so I said, "These guys, you know, they, I don't get this music in Braden and Beach." Florida, where right. I was living at that point. So yeah. uh, 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 the music appealed to me, the uh, the culture there appealed to me. So I decided, yep, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to just move to Austin. You know, my, my wife and I had gotten divorced. Yeah. So it was nothing holding me in Florida. So moved to Austin in uh, about 70, I want to say 73. Uh-huh. And Jerry Jeff Walker was your main gig. Jerry Jeff point. Walker was my main gig. Was he mostly in point. Texas, like just sticking around that whole Texas scene, or was he touring a lot? No, he was uh, nationwide. Okay. We played uh, almost every uh, every state in the union. We did a lot of uh, uh, support uh, support for Willie Nelson. Yep. Yeah. And uh, did a lot of festivals on our own. We played Red Rocks a couple of times. Okay. And uh, uh, yeah, just played everywhere. People uh, at, at that time, at that time in history, uh, Outlaw Country was a big deal. It was a big Willie deal. Willie and Waylon yeah. and Jerry Jeff Walker was mentioned in, in their in their company. Totally. You know, and that at that level. Yeah. Um, so we we headlined a lot of places, and then we supported him in a lot of places. I enjoyed. I did five records with Jerry Jeff Walker, and right. one of the best things about working with him was meeting some of the other guys in uh-huh. in, uh, in the outlaw country sort of thing. Like we were just talking about uh, uh, Joe Ely, yeah, and uh, Bobby Bridger, and uh, Joe Ely would have just been like and, a kid, uh, then, right? Butch Hancock, yeah. Joe Ely was just a kid, and uh, we did one of his songs, uh, "Sucking on a Big Bottle of Gin." Really? And uh, so he was already writing. Tunes he was already were, writing songs. Wow, yeah, killer. Um, so what was your what was your recording experience like with Jerry Jeff Walker? Did you guys record in Austin? Uh, the first record we made, I think we cut it with a mobile unit out of his, out of his house. Oh, he had an upright wow. upright piano, and I think that record is called "Contrary to Ordinary." And that's uh, early days for doing a home recording. Early days, yeah. And but, were you playing a full B three rig at that point, or what was your scene? Yes, I had a B three. I'm trying to recall that exact session whether there was a B three there at the house or not. I know there was an upright piano there. Yeah, I'm sure there was a B three there. I'm had I had all my yeah. keyboards there. Yeah. So on the on uh, uh, traveling around with him, my rig was the B three, uh-huh. and I had a uh, if I'm not mistaken a CP seventy piano or something like okay. that. You you weren't traveling with a whirly or anything like that. It was just piano and organ. That was no whirly, thing. no. Yeah. 
uh, piano and organ, and uh, and we traveled a lot. And like I said, one of the best things about it was meeting these other, uh, some of these other people, um, Joe Wheelie, uh, uh, Butch Hancock. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite the scene. Milton Carroll, uh, B.W. Yeah. Stevenson. Um, and so were you doing sessions for all those the other wheel. guys too? Um, or were I, you pretty I, tied to the Jerry Jeff Walker band? No, that's one of the cool things about uh, Austin is I was doing sessions with everybody. Okay, cool. And uh, and also, I found this place, Antone's, uh, that you were just talking about. And they had by this time, they had moved to... Uh, not long after I moved there, they moved to the new location up on Waterloo mm-hmm. and uh, started hanging out there and sitting in with a band up there and started to meet some of the blues guys yeah. in uh, in Austin. Were the T-Birds going then? Or, the or... T-Birds were still doing their regular Monday night gig at okay. the Rome Inn. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and um, Stevie uh, had his band together called Triple Threat with uh, Lou Ann Barton and uh, oh, yeah, W.C. Right. Clark. Okay. And uh, Paul Ray and the Cobras, a bunch of great blues bands around there. And I said, yeah. man, this is just this is just a, a, a great place to be right now. Was Doug Somm back there then, too? Or was he uh, still Doug in- Somm showed up. Uh, I mean, I, I made a record with him uh, at some point. Uh, I lived in Austin from about 73 until I moved to Nashville in 91. Okay. And uh, so he showed up at some point. I don't recall exactly when it was. Yeah, he's but, always he's in the mix there somewhere. But one of the one of the guys I met uh, in Austin was George Rains, our old drummer with yeah. Boz Skaggs. And George said, "Oh, I can't believe you showed up here, man. You, know, you really, <laughs> you know, you, we quit our band. It really pissed me off." <laughs> <laughs> well, you Sorry, left a, George. <laughs> you left a trail of destruction. <laughs> I left a trail of destruction, <laughs> and uh, and uh, ended up. Uh, Ended up uh, having a reunion with George down there in Austin. It was really nice. Uh-huh. And nice to get the chance to work with him a lot and playing the kind of music that uh, I thought was right. was more enjoyable for all of us. Uh, and so tell me about, like, musically, what was going on with you. Like, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about your early, like, your upbringing. But, like, at that point, were you, going, were you um, enjoying the whole, like, bringing in this whole country element that the, these guys were bringing, like, playing with songwriters and stuff rather than blues or straight up rock bands like you're kind of being a supportive guy all of a sudden was that like shifting your mind at all musically at that point i had already uh played with um the second coming yeah. i'd already played with uh you know sort of sort of southern rock with the second coming yeah uh hard rock with captain beyond right uh sort of r&b with boz skaggs you know a traveling show band uh what we did uh, uh um Derek and the Dominoes uh, to um, Chicago, and yeah. uh, and so I like to think uh, 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 it was really my one of my first playing with Jerry Jeff Walker was really one of my first entries into the country field. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so that was interesting for me. I was I was really uh, lucky that I had great guys in the band. Yeah, uh, a couple of them I could mention is uh, Dave Perkins on guitar. Uh-huh. Who lives here in Nashville now? Uh, Fred Kirch on drums, uh, Ron Cobb on bass, Bobby Rambo on guitar, who is an excellent guitar player, and none of them were really country giants. Right. But it was sort of a rock band playing sure. country yeah. music, and yeah. we had a, a terrific steel player named Leo LeBlanc, okay, who was our who was our country guy. Okay. And and was your role like? Did you have to kind of really figure out how to fit into that scene, or did you just kind of pop in and you guys were just a band? Immediately? Well, I could I figured out how to play Mr. Bojangles, and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know I could uh, 
some of the other songs, uh, um, uh, "Up Against the Wall," "You Redneck Mother." You know, it's not it's not brain surgery. You know, yeah. you can do. I can yeah. I can play this stuff. But it is you know, shifting gears a little, sort of like going from you know like hard rock and blues stuff into more of a country setting. It's a bit. I've more always been able to do that. Yeah. One of the things I was not able to switch into easily is the jazz mode. Okay. And, uh, Martin wanted me to play with him. Okay. And he said, you know, don't think of it as jazz, Reese. Just think <laughs> of it as music. Just play okay. music. <laughs> and so it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's jazz or it's blues right. or it's rock. Just play Good music. Advice. Just play music. And so I took that, uh, that advice to heart, and uh, it was easy to switch to, uh-huh. to play those country songs. Okay. And I sort of played them with a rock influence, I guess. Yeah, man. Yeah. So what were your influences then on, on keyboard? Like, did you ever listen to like Jimmy Smith and, and like the jazz organ players? Was that a thing for you or? When I lived at the, when I was living at the Swiss American hotel, working with Boz, <laughs> Jimmy Smith was playing a gig at the jazz workshop on oh, that street on Gary. Yeah. And I went down, I couldn't afford to go see him, but I went down, stood outside yeah. and listened to him. He was such a huge <laughs> influence on me. And I liked the guy with uh, Santana. I liked the guy with the Doors. Yeah. I liked uh, the guy who just uh, 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 Greg Allman. You know, he just right. he just passed away not too long ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, I liked the guy with the Zombies. I like uh, all those keyboard players. Keith Emerson. You know, they were all. Everybody had something to say. You know, everybody was right. uh, uh, Rock was fairly young. You know, we were all. They were all making statements, and I was uh, trying to. You know, make my statement. What about the what about blues players like Otis Spann and Johnny Johnson and people like that? Like you know, they... I, I disc- at this point I had not really uh, explored the blues field really extensively. Really, no, I'd never okay. been in a real a real blues band, uh-huh. and until I uh, lived in Austin oh, okay. and started hanging around at Antones <laughs> and started uh, listening to this, I said, "Man, this is uh, these guys have a deep." Uh, um, uh, vocabulary of this yeah. Texas blues, and so I started. Uh, uh, they kind of introduced me to Albert King and Freddie King and Muddy yeah. Waters, and um, I always played uh, in club bands. I played, got my mojo working, but it was, yeah. I didn't know where it came from. I actually heard Jimmy Smith's <clears throat> version before I heard Muddy Waters' version, really? <laughs> which is which is strange, I yeah. guess. But uh, but uh, but Austin was good to me as far as teaching me about the blues. And uh, did you have any keyboard mentors in Austin, like guys that you really looked up to as a newcomer there? Uh, one guy I really liked was Floyd Domino. Uh, uh, Marsha Ball was there, who played this great uh, New Orleans piano stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, mostly guitar players. Yeah. In Austin, I yeah. think at that yeah. point. Yeah, that was a big guitar town. Still yeah. is. <laughs> and, and, and because of that, I managed to get a little bit of work, you know, and, right. uh, and it was easy for me to work my way in. Yeah, that's the way to do it. So what about early on, like when you were a kid? So you, what, what town in Florida did you grow up in? Well, I, we moved around. Uh, I was born in Pennsylvania, uh-huh. moved to Florida as a first grader, lived in Clearwater uh, until I went to um, junior high school and moved to Sarasota. Okay. Ended up going to um, uh, Florida State University in Tallahassee. Taking what were you, what were you studying at that point? I was going to be a teacher. Oh, I'd never been in a band, I was, so I was going to be a music teacher. Oh, okay. And uh, so you were but, deeply, you but, were into music. Yeah, you know, I was then. into music. But my brother took me to took me to a, see a, a concert in Bradenton. It was this guy Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. And okay. uh, <laughs> what year would that have been? Uh, well, I must have been about fourteen years old. Okay. You know, and uh, and it was the Fourth of July, 
and it was uh, and he was at his height of oh, zaniness with yeah. uh, you know uh, uh, kicking the piano stool back sure. and playing this you know wild piano stuff yeah. and his hair's flying all over the place and uh, people shooting off firecrackers in the back of the hall <laughs> you can just imagine you know what kind of scene Bedlam. it was craziness yeah I said oh this is this is different yeah and uh, and um, so when I went to uh, Went to college. I said, uh, you know, I could, uh, I could probably play in a rock band. I could probably do that. They were, and I ran into this this group of guys who wanted to put a band together. And I went out and bought a Wurlitzer electric piano. And uh, so you'd play piano as a kid. Like, what was your experience? At yeah, that point? I had I'd, I'd studied classical uh, okay. classical music from an early age. Uh, and in high school, I played with a high school dance band. And uh, okay. And uh, but none of it was rock. So when I got to got to college and played with this rock band, it was the first really first rock band I ever played with. They were called the Prowlers, yes. and we worked up. Uh, this will be the last time, sure. and it's all over now. Uh, R and B uh, hits, basically. Uh, all those all those uh, songs that were popular back in the yeah. mid '60s when I was going to college. Okay, and had you played any organ at all? No, no. So at that point, I was just playing, and... just playing piano. Okay, just playing whirly. Okay, there were no uh, real pianos that you could play on a gig. You would have you to mic a piano right. at the back in those days. Right. But my whirly was holding up pretty well, and uh, and yeah. it sounded pretty good on "She's Not There." Sure, yeah. You know, that's whirly's perfect for that. Yeah, you know? yeah. So uh, so worked out all right. Uh, and so what about on, on, on piano? Like, did you have any influences or was it just kind of like you learned classical and then you just thrust yourself into bands and kind of figured it out by yourself? The classical, which I was pretty good at, um, ended up being mainly, uh, uh, uh technique training and ear training as far okay. as, uh, uh, was it any good for, uh, rock music? Right. Not really. Uh, but, uh. But I could take a song like You Really Got Me, yeah. and I could hear all the chords to it okay. because they were simple chords. I yeah. knew what they were from all the uh, ear, ear training and musical training I had as a classical musician. Going from classical to You yeah, Really Got so Me. Is, I, so I a, could tell the yeah. guys in the band, oh, no, that goes to B flat here. No, right. that goes to there's, there's, there's a quick D, and then it goes to C, uh, and help them, help them get better as a band. So, right. I, so I became a valuable person to have. You were like the around. Garth Hudson of Florida. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> and so you played in some of those bands. and, and, and we, play, we played fraternity parties in college. Was it something you thought you'd take seriously, or were you just kind of having a laugh? Are you kidding? No, no. It was just a, it was a complete laugh, yeah. a total laugher. And uh, I said, oh, man. And I remember... Uh, uh, seeing pictures of this band Spirit and they had a guy in the band who was about 60 years old and I said, man, what is that guy doing, man? How, <laughs> how can you be, still be playing rock music when you're that old? I said, no, I won't, be doing, did you know. I won't be doing this by the time I'm 25. I'm, you know, my rock and roll days will be long gone behind yeah, me. Sure. Little did I know, yeah. yeah. So at some point you run into Dickie Betts and Barry Oakley, right? Like how did that whole thing with the second coming come about where were you and how did you meet those guys when i left college i got married and left college and i decided i was i had after after playing in a band for a year and a half that this is what i wanted to do this okay, was this, so was, this was this was fun something clicked and you're like yes this is, I, I can, can i can okay. make a living doing this i got married yeah. i can i can i can uh i can you know 
get my own place, I can make a living, support my wife, you know, myself and my wife. And so uh, I got this gig playing with uh, Joe Bill and the Playboys, uh-huh. uh, who's a cover band in Florida. Play, ended up playing with the Illusions, another another cover band in Florida. We ended up I ended up getting a house gig out at this uh, place called the uh, Toro Club, and um, one of the bands who came in there occasionally was Dickie Betts. And uh, I was trying to think of the name of his band at that point, which I can't think of it. Sorry, he uh, didn't call it Great Southern or anything. At oh that no, point. no, it was. Uh, I'll think of it. I can't think of it right now. Um, but um, he was uh, kind of a famous, a, a notorious guy in Florida as being a great guitar player. Okay. And so he had, uh, he, he, uh, he came in with his band. I had to go over and see him. And, uh, and he was just a phenomenal guitar player. And he had a great organ player with him, oh, okay. uh, a guy named Rod somebody. Okay. And, um, and I said, man, I, I, I've got to get one of these organs. We had to learn how to play one of these things. So I went and bought a, uh, a cheap Hammond organ and started, you know, f- using that in a band. And, okay. uh, and, um, and w- with a Leslie? or was With there- a Leslie, okay. yes. So you got the full deal. Yeah, were they super expensive back then? Or what I, was I think I paid a thousand bucks for okay. the organ. That's a lot back then. It was, it was a lot, but yeah. uh, but uh, but you know, I was I was making uh, okay money at yep. the time. And uh, what and, kind of Hammond was it? Do you remember what you had first? I want to say it's an L one hundred. Okay, and uh, had the sort of the staggered keyboards. Had some of the um, some draw had bars. Some draw bars for the left hand, and then stops switches. for the right hand. Right. And with a with a little half octave or, or a, almost a one octave of pedals. Uh, okay. And uh, were you playing pedals at all? No. Okay. You just avoided no, but them. they were there. They were there. Okay. <laughs> taking up space. Uh, taking up space. That's that's right. <laughs> okay. And uh, and uh, uh, one another guy I met there was Larry Reinhardt, uh, who who went on to uh, uh, be the guy with Captain uh, Beyond. Right. But. Um, I met Dickie. I met Rhino, and, uh, and just at the gig, and like and you went up to just, them. Just, just, and-, uh, and we were a big. We were all all the musicians were friends with each other. We would yeah. go to support each other's gigs, sit in, and right. and so we got to know everybody a little bit. Yeah. So as time went on, um, uh, Dickie and Rhino left. Well, before they left, uh, the bass player who came into town was this guy Barry Oakley, yeah. who suddenly showed up. Uh, Where and was we'll, he from? Florida he was from well? Chicago. Oh, Chicago! And okay. he suddenly showed up in Sarasota, and uh, we were our bass player had been arrested for non-payment of child support, oh. and uh, we were kind of trying different guys out. And this guy Barry Oakley shows up, and uh, and he knows how to play bass. Yeah. And so we hired Barry right away, and Barry was a great okay. guy. And he was a good we, and we, and Yeah, we became friends right away. He's about your age? He's like, about my age. Yeah. Introduced me to Pot. And, okay. uh, and, uh, and also to the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Nice. And, uh, and, the, Jeff, and the Jefferson man. Airplane and uh, the Grateful Dead and people like that, yeah. which I, uh, I, I was unfamiliar with that, that type of music. Okay. Well, eventually Dickie... And Barry and Rhino all left the area. They had, they, they had a, an opportunity to go to Jacksonville and put this band together called The Second Coming. Okay. Who was in charge of The Second Coming? Uh, there was a guy named Leonard uh, Rensler, something like that, okay. who uh, ran this club called The Scene. And, uh, and there's a story where they kind of toured around and ended up at his club. And okay. I'm, I'm not sure of the story because okay. I wasn't there. Right. I, and I, so I'm sorry, I don't recall that. But the story I can tell you is how I ended up going to Jacksonville well, let's hear uh, it. from uh, Sarasota 
which I was uh, I was working with probably the Illusions or, or yeah. Joe Bill again, and yeah. uh, and playing the local clubs. We would we would play. Uh, we would drive from Sarasota up to Tampa to play the Strip Joint or to St. Petersburg to play <laughs> the, gigs, the Office man. Lounge. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff, cover bands. Yeah. You know. And it was okay. I was having a good time. And, sure. uh, and, uh, but it was, you know, it was, it was musically. Did you miss those guys? Like, cause... Musically, it was just, it's not that satisfying to okay. me. You know, I, was, I mean, I could play Ode to Billy Joe. I, I, I could play Groovin'. Uh, I could play bad, bad Leroy Brown, but I, I, it wasn't really. You were bored. Yeah, I was, I was looking for something more exciting than yeah. that. So I, I'm not sure who it was, or if it was Dickie or his Rhino called me eventually, and they said, well, we've got this band here in Jacksonville. Our organ player is Dickie Betts' wife, Dale. Really? She's, she's, and she was, she's pregnant. She's getting ready to have the baby. We want you to come up and sub for her while she goes in the hospital. Okay. And, um, she'll be out three days and, later. Yeah, she'll be out. <laughs> you know, she'll be ready to come back when she's ready to come back to work. So I said, sure. And uh, uh, drove, up, d- drove up to Jacksonville's five-hour drive. You yeah. know, I drove up there, and uh, and the the, uh, the club had given up all the guys in the band rooms in this really sleazy hotel downtown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so uh, my wife and I moved into our room. We didn't know how long we were going to stay there. Uh, went down, down to the club, and it was like so. A, it was like an ongoing house gig at six this club? nights a week. Holy shit! At the at this club, and the club was in those days they had. Uh, this was a new kind of thing called a psychedelic nightclub. Had flashing lights on the dance floor, liquid projection screens around the sides. Awesome. Uh, the stage was big. Yeah. Uh, there was a, a winding staircase at the back of the stage that went downstairs into our dressing room. Nice. So it was that kind of thing. It was right. a pretty cool club. Yeah, man. Uh, and so I said, man, this, this is great. So they had worked up all these songs like um, Cover, covers. Uh, Born in Chicago. Okay. Okay. And uh, uh, still cover band. Yeah, uh, Rhino did a bunch of Hendrix songs, okay. Foxy Lady and right. Purple Haze. And this is around Fire. 67, 68. This was about 67. Okay, 67 or 68. Yeah. And um, so I, I I could play all those songs. I learned them real quick and uh, sure. and was ready to go. And so we had yeah. a great time. So yeah. uh, um, I was uh, I was loving playing with those guys again. We were doing these cooler songs, yeah. cooler than Bad Bad Leroy Brown. And uh, playing at these, playing six nights a week at this club, I was making great money. Then on uh, on Sundays, we would go and do uh, jam sessions at the park oh, in really? town. Yeah. yeah, just set up your gear. Just set up our gear. Out. No permits. No <laughs> nothing. And so that was fun. We got yeah. to meet some of the other guys in town. There was another band playing uh, at this club called the Comic Book Club, which was uh, the band was the Bitter End. Uh-huh. Bitter End, I think that was the name of them. Um, Scott Boyer, David Brown, and uh, Butch Trucks. Oh, okay. And uh, and so we, we got to meet those guys. There was another band that was getting together called the One Percent, and some of those guys would hang around. They okay. they went so on to scene. they went on to become uh, uh, Leonard Skinner. Oh, okay. Um, wow. So yeah, it was definitely a scene in Jacksonville. Yeah. And then this guy started showing up. Uh, and sitting in with us, his uh, name was Dwayne Almond. Scruffy and, old uh, Dwayne. Yeah, 
and uh, uh, played this thing, uh, the slide guitar, and uh, um, none of us had ever heard anything like it. And he played really well, and he could it could fit in with the sounds. Obviously, his studio experience. He'd already know, spent he, his time at Muscle Shoals. Yeah, he, then, he, right? he would drive down from Muscle Shoals, sit in with us, spend a weekend with us. Why are you guys? Do, like, how did that whole like him and Dickie just found each other somehow? They or? just he just showed up. Weird. I don't know if Dickie knew him from the Almond Joys yeah. or the Hourglass yeah. or not. You okay. know, I'm not really sure about that. Okay. You know, they, I mean, because he, he had been sudden. around Florida. Yeah, sure. He yeah. and Greg had been around, but yeah. I had never seen him. And never, Greg, so Greg's still out him. in L.A. at this point. Greg was thing. in L.A. Dwayne would come down. He took Barry Oakley up to uh, Muscle Shoals to do a, to do a record. Okay. And, uh, and then they, uh, J-Mo started coming down with him. Okay. And we had these big jam sessions on Sunday, and Butch came out. So tell me a bit about these jam there. sessions. Like, like, I've read some of the, you know, like, there's some of the early, or some of the books where they talk about the early years and stuff like that, where it just seems like it's, like, constant jamming going on and Dwayne sort of spearheading some of the stuff. And, yeah, I mean, but, we were just, I mean, all of the bands would be there. We would just, hey, let's, I want to get down with you and you and you, okay. and let's go up and play uh, play this song, and uh, let's play I Don't Want You No More. Would there or, be a crowd there as well? Oh, yeah, really? yeah. Well, people people loved it. It was yeah. a free concert. Okay. You know, and that was the idea, playing free music for the, for the people. Right. And, of course, it was packed, wow. you know, and, uh, uh, and so that went on and on. Um, uh, so you guys like really cut your teeth, like just jamming yeah, and just jamming, jamming. and, and sometimes Dwayne would just come up with a a, a progression. Yeah, you know, C descend down to the F, you know, yeah. and uh, and we're just going to play over that. Yeah, and then we play that along, and Barry would start uh, uh, moving around a little bit, and he'd come up with some uh, other ideas. So we'd follow Barry a little bit. And was Barry kind and, of fully formed as a player at that point? Absolutely, like he, he, he was playing. He was playing beautifully back yeah. then. Okay. So was Dwayne. Not so much for me. I was I was still <laughs> oh, uh, pretty much a beginner when it comes to all this all this rock stuff. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. But for you, like getting that experience of stretching out and like playing these endless jams was yeah. probably a, probably totally changed your approach right T- totally uh, changed my approach learn how to learn how to just play and and continue playing yeah the second coming actually did make a record right we did a cover of this cream song called i feel free 
which I've, which is on YouTube. You can check it out if you I want to. I will find that. I didn't know that. Okay, so that's a studio recording. That's our only recording. And that's you and Dickie and... And, and Dale Barry. and uh, Barry, Barry Oakley. Not Dwayne. Uh, not Dwayne. Our drummer at, uh, with that band was John Meeks. Okay. And uh, Rhino was in that band, too. Okay. Dwayne said, after, after repeated uh, Sunday jam sessions... <laughs> I really like this. I really like this scene down here. Yeah. I like you guys. I want. I want to put a band together down here. When my, my brother is going. When my brother comes back, we're going to. We're going to get a band together. We're going to play. And we said, I kind of thought, yeah. Well, we'll see what happens when that. If that time ever comes. Yeah. And um, meanwhile, like I said, we made that uh, the second coming. Made that record. Mm-hmm. Um, Were there labels around? Like Capricorn wasn't a thing. It then, was or? just a local label. Um, I'm not sure who paid for it. Okay. And you're probably wondering what happened to Dale uh, after she had the baby. Well, she yeah. came back as our lead singer and conga player. Okay. And, uh, nice. and I, I, I retained the uh, you retained the, the organ or, the organ seat. Yeah. Nice. And um, <laughs> um, and that was fine with her too. She right. she was out front. She was the lead singer. She, yeah. she did the Jefferson Airplane stuff. Perfect. We did White Rabbit. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Dicky was an interesting guy back then. He was, he was still playing, playing great, and he was mm-hmm. he was getting it to where he wanted to uh, work out introductions to songs. Okay. And we would write. He would write these elaborate pieces. You know, work out these elaborate pieces. Like unconnected with, to the song. Unconnected to the song. Okay. You just want to play them. And I said, "Well, let me play this something with you." So I would come up with these harmony parts to him, and we'd work. Excuse me. We'd work out these elaborate. We had an, an elaborate intro to "I Feel Free" that never got recorded. Really? Uh, but it was just. Uh, uh, it reminds me of uh, like it wasn't his, random jamming. It was like a no, specific not random thing. jamming. Okay. His he would play it the same way every time. Okay. And have different time signatures and yeah. just the way he felt it. Yeah. And um, I mean, you would go. You look at his later playing with the Almond Brothers and you could see where, where Elizabeth Reed comes yeah, from yeah Elizabeth Reed Hot Atlanta yeah. right. all, all the instrumentals that he wrote it was, it was kind of like in that vein right okay. and so he was starting to he was starting to, do he was that. Starting to experiment into that into and were that. him and Dwayne clicking as a pair or were they competitive oh everybody clicked it? with Dwayne everybody okay. clicked with Dwayne he was just super uh, friendly uh, and uh, 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 bit uh uh, Dickie and Dwayne hit it off more than Rhino and Dwayne. Yeah. Rhino was kind of like the Hendrix guy, the feedback guy, the uh, okay. distortion. You know, Dickie was more the blues R and B guy. Yeah. You know, yeah. which was which meshed much more with Dwayne's style. Right, and so at some point. Dwayne kind of announces that he's going to bring his when his brother all in, right? of a sudden Greg shows up and uh, you know your and, uh, and uh, <laughs> he says I want you and I want you and a you and. Uh, and I thought I would be in the band. Yeah. But he said, I can't have two two guitars and two keyboards. Shit. You know, so I got left out. Yeah. And that was that, that was it. It was just like, you know what? Well, he didn't say that to Chuck Lavelle later on, but he said it to me. <laughs> okay, so that's all right, you know. So uh so they were they they, they all quit the band. So you so were I, heard I am out of a gig band. again. Oh, that sucks. And uh was that like a was it a disheartening blow or were you just like well i gotta do something else i guess i've moved back to sarasota okay and um uh, rhino uh put a band together called the load a uh, little power trio eventually he wanted to go back to jacksonville as the new second coming so he mm-hmm. called me yeah. we got our old drummer john uh john meeks and with as a five-piece band we started playing uh <coughs> excuse me uh weekly concerts at the beach coliseum out there for hundreds of people and uh we played all rhino's original songs and uh there's a recording of that too yeah 
Uh, but the Almond Brothers were, were getting their band together, and they would open for us sometimes. Sometimes uh, the 1% would open for us. Okay. There was uh, no ill will or anything? No, though. no, not at all. Buddies and, not at all. They, okay. they were going to get the band together and move. Right. They, were, they were going to make it. To make it. None of us really wanted to go to make it. <laughs> okay. Um, so they, they eventually moved up there. Uh, uh, the 1% became Leonard Skinnerd. They moved to Atlanta, I think. Yeah. And uh, I think Albert Al Cooper produced them. Oh, really? If I'm not okay. mistaken. Didn't okay. he? He's the oh, guy. that's right. He produced their first record, yeah. And um, Pronounced Leonard Skinnerd. Yeah. It's an Al Cooper production. I uh, and so then I let, that's, that's what, that brings us full circle to when yeah. I, I had to go back to Sarasota again, right. you know, without a gig. And, uh, Dwayne called me and said, do I want to join Boss Gags? Okay. So that's how, that's the way that went. So now, now fast forward. So you, you're living in Austin and tell living me- in Austin, uh, 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 been with Jerry Jeff Walker for about five years. Yeah. Uh, made five records, toured the toured the uh, the, the country. country. Yeah. Uh, made records with lots of uh, interesting people in in Austin. Uh, uh, this guy, Delbert McClinton, famous honky tonk blues singer. Yeah. Uh, we opened a couple of shows for us. Okay, and I thought he was great. Yeah, so I, was, great. I was getting tired of Jerry Jeff's crap, and I uh, was he a uh, tough guy to work with? He was not a nice guy. Oh, okay. Um, uh, not so not not particularly tough to work with. Just not a very nice guy. That's a drag. Um, when you're touring and stuff, you don't need to be a. Well, the rally. band was great though. The uh-huh. band was great, but when my buddy Dave left, I wasn't as interested in the Jerry Jeff Walker band. So you were looking for something else. I was ready for something else yeah. when it came along, and it was. And I had been playing more and more blues down at the Anton's Club, mm-hmm. and uh, just sitting in, with and just whoever. sitting in. Yeah. So Delbert was looking for a keyboard player. So I raised my hand, and said, "I think I'm, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to play the I'm going to play the blues." Yeah, and um, I ended up touring with and uh, joining his band and touring with them once again on the Willie Nelson support. Uh, yeah, because Delbert uh, really crossed over between those blues and country worlds. Yeah, absolutely, an yeah. and uh, and just like Jerry Jeff had been Willie's support band, now all of a sudden Delbert was Willie's support band. Right. So I was friends with the Willie guys. You know, I'd been been I spent about ten years opening shows for them. Right. Uh, and uh, and I really liked Delbert, and I liked the the, the band, and we played uh, played all over the place, and uh, I made a bunch of records with them. Yeah. Um. What were those? I think it was about four records with him. What were those records uh, like, studio-wise? Do you remember those? Studio-wise, uh, he didn't use his band for oh, really? uh, for the Why? the studio stuff, but he used me. Why? Uh, he wanted to. Re- the first record we did was called uh, the one "Give It Up." Uh, Give it up. Give for it your up love. for your love. Yeah. We, we we cut it in Muscle Shoals. Oh, so he wanted to use those guys. He wanted to use those guys. So oh, Barry okay. Beckett produced it. Uh, John Jarvis and I played keyboards on on that okay. stuff. Yeah. Uh, second record was the same thing. We went to, back to Muscle Shoals and, okay. and played it, and I think I was the only keyboard player at that time. Uh, third record was The Jealous Kind. I think we also cut that in Muscle Shoals, and Jarvis was playing on that as well. Did it tick the band off that they weren't being used on the records? Uh, it's a good way to tick the band off. Yeah. And, uh, 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 Especially because that, that band was point, probably that, it was probably a great band. Let right? me let me just explain to you that uh, we had a, a, a two guitar players, a sax player, drums, bass, and keys. Yeah, and uh, and the drummer got so they would get so upset with it with Delbert. I mean, he would fire the drummer <laughs> if, if if we had a drummer for two months. 
It was amazing. <laughs> he kept firing the drummer over and over again. I mean, oh we God. went through dozens of drummers. What a nightmare. And one guy we hired and fired five times. Really? Was, uh, was it a personal <laughs> thing, or was he just hard uh, on drummers? I, I, just tough on drummers. Tough on and drummers. Not that great on bass players, either. We went okay. through some bass players. It seemed like we were always reforming the band. So you could say, yes, it was a great band, but it was a constant, constant ch- state of shift. flux. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so... But I enjoyed the music, and uh, and uh, Delbert was a pretty good guy. So you stayed with him up through stayed, into the 80s, I was with 80s him, I was with him for five years and gotten yeah. remarried and uh, and toured again. And uh, my marriage had gotten in trouble towards the end of the uh, the end of the run with Delbert, and mm-hmm. so I because you were gone, so I'd much. given my yeah, I'd given my notice. We'd had we have two small children, right. I'm going home. Yeah, um, getting off the road. Getting off the road and try to try to save things. You know, try to put things back together. What did you uh, see yourself doing? Well, I don't know. I, I assumed I would just work around awesome. Austin again as yeah. a local guy and okay. uh, and uh, do sessions there and just yeah. uh, just stay home. Yeah. At this point, I'd been on the road for ten years yeah. with with those two guys and. For about another ten years, with Boz and various other show bands. So around 1980, I gave my notice, and yeah. uh, the last thing we did with uh, with Delbert was this show in Fort Worth, and um, we had a sax player there. I'll tell you the story of how I met Stevie, or how I started working with Stevie. We had a sax player there named Joe Sublette, who oh, yeah. was friends with Chris Layton. Uh, drummer for Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. Yeah, he was in Denny Freeman's band too, I think, right? Joseph Bled was in a. He's been in a lot of bands. He okay, lives in he's LA. One of those guys. He lives in yeah. LA's band. He was in uh, Denny Freeman's band, The Cobras. Right. That's right. Okay. So they wanted Joe to come out and play a sax solo. They, uh, they Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble was yeah. in Dallas okay. at the Sound Lab. Yeah. Uh, re- making a record. Now one of the songs they were doing is this song called "Look at Little Sister," Hank Ballard song. Yeah, sure. We wanted a sax solo on it. We wanted Joe to play it. Okay. So we were finishing our, our run in Fort Worth. They were going to come over, pick up Joe after the gig, take him to the studio. But Joe was in Delbert's band, too. He was in Delbert's okay. band. Yeah, I forgot to say that. And play the solo. And uh, uh, they came to get him, and they said, well, look, our piano player didn't show up. Perfect. You know, would you, want to, would you come over and play piano on this song? Perfect. And uh, sure. So this is soul to soul they're making. This is soul to soul is okay. the record they're making. The piano player, I think, was Denny Freeman, oh. who's a guitar player, also played great keyboards. Oh, I didn't know he played piano. And um, so we went over there. I mean, I had heard of uh, Steve Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. I'd heard his rec- his records You'd that he made. You'd seen him around Austin? Or? I'd seen him around Austin, had never really met him, yeah. uh, but I'd seen him play several times. And they're huge at this point. They're huge around all around Texas. So then, and, and, and elsewhere, right? And like, uh, apparently elsewhere, exactly. By, by then? By then. Yeah, okay. Little did I know. Oh, you, you uh, weren't aware of their, their No, no, hugeness. their worldwide okay. hugeness. No. <laughs> no, uh, I knew that. They, but, but one of the things I always like to do is, you, you take, is, is there's a, a band that's a power trio, and they don't really realize that keyboards would sound go, so great with their band. Right. And I go in and play with them, and all of a sudden, oh, man, that is so wonderful. So I, I got a lot of sessions doing that, you know, right. playing with guys who didn't have keyboard players. Right. And so these guys had never had a keyboard player. Uh-huh. And uh, we went in and played it. We, uh, we, did, we uh, got to the studio, 
So did you did they ask you to play once you got there or you went there with the, they'd already hired you to play? They'd already wanted me to play on this song. The one song, okay. Yeah, so they got, Chris came and picked up Joe and I, went over to the studio. You have to imagine this scene at the studio. The whole, the whole live gear was all set up Just in the studio. Amps and- Lot, walls of amps, it was the loudest thing you ever heard really? inside the studio. I wondered about uh, that because that's I mean, a notoriously loud live band. But. And, uh, uh, you know, Joe couldn't hear what he was playing. I, I was in an <laughs> ISO room, could barely hear what I'm playing on the piano. And uh, was, so, so we, we cut this song. And Tommy Shannon's loud, too. Tommy like Shannon's a, loud. Chris is just banging away, wow. playing the <clears throat> Excuse me, beautiful drums, and uh, so we we ended up uh, uh, cutting this track, uh, playing this track uh, a couple times, and they they had they just, the, the band just nailed it. Yeah, they love they love the uh, the the sax and the keyboards, but Joe and I insisted we're gonna just gonna play it again because we couldn't hear ourselves. <laughs> so, so we both went back in and played it again. He did a beautiful solo on it, and uh, and oh, so you uh, overdubbed. You yeah, we, oh, we, okay. we, over, we ended up overdubbing. Okay, and it was. Uh, Interesting playing a uh, rock and roll in E flat, something yeah, so I something I'd so never done before. Semitone. And, uh, and how was that? Like, well, I that's mean, not an easy. This thing is to where do. your classical chops come in handy. Ah, okay. <laughs> you know that E flat is not really a problem to me because I play songs in E flat all the time okay. when I'm pl- playing classical music. Still, it's not that's something a big I, leap to I've ever yeah. done with any rock bands. Right. You know, this for the first guy I'd met who wanted to tune down. Wow. So they really liked it. So they were they were through with Joe. They said we have this other song. Okay, uh, it's called uh, "You Can't Change It." Yeah, and we thought maybe organ would sound pretty good on that. Uh, do you play organ? And uh, <laughs> do I, I, play said, I said, yeah, man, I, I can do that. And so uh, so we worked up. Uh, you can't change it. So there was know? an organ there. Yeah, it was a B three there. B3 there, okay. So we got a track on that immediately. You know, two, two times through. You know, I, I charted the song out. Yeah, played all later that we had one little. Uh, a rough spot towards the end. Uh, it took a couple times to get it, but then we got that. So, so were they kind of bashing this album out like pretty quickly? It seems. Yeah, like that, that what I didn't realize until later is that they had already been there for a week. Okay, and were not particularly happy with the tracks that they were it getting. It wasn't going right. It was okay. okay, but it wasn't really. You know, it wasn't stellar. It wasn't fantastic. They weren't. Uh-huh. They didn't think they were really on a roll. Okay. All of a sudden, this night, they already had two tracks that they thought were fantastic. Right. So he wanted to work up this other song called, this instrumental called Soul to Soul. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> so we played that. And uh, and uh, gave me a little solo on it. And, so uh, you're fitting right and, in. Uh, so I'm, 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 we're rocking. Yeah. And uh, this by this time, it's about six o'clock in the morning. Reese, this is this is great. We want to. We would like to do some more of this. Can you stay around? And uh, so you went all night and come back in tomorrow. Oh, wicked! And uh, yeah, but well, by the time we got we we went there, it was after our show. Yeah, you know, so our show ended up oh, so you didn't like get about one o'clock in the morning. Okay. <laughs> so we were there. We didn't get there until one thirty or two o'clock. Okay. So yeah, about six. We had done these three tracks, and they were excited about it. So I came back that night. We got three more tracks. Wow, and so we are well uh, on way. At the end of that night, at the end of that night, Reese, do you want to be in our band? Really? Yeah. (laughs) And so I had the dilemma. Did you know know how much they were touring and stuff? No, I didn't know very much about them at all. Okay. You know, they were sort of this big name around Texas. I thought, you know, I thought maybe it was sort of a statewide thing. Really? Um, Maybe. I mean. 
maybe we would get out a little bit. And I didn't, I didn't think they were as big as somebody like Delbert McClinton. Right. Really? That's or funny, Jerry man. Jeff Walker. Okay. So, um, but it was the dilemma because I was. Because you were just off. I was trying. Try, I just quit. Yeah. I determined to stay home and try to repair my marriage yeah. and, um, and uh, be with the kids. And uh, so I, I, I said, I'll have to let you know. So I went home and thought about it and uh, talked, to, talked to my wife about it, talked to my friends about it, realized that this is really uh, quite an opportunity. And mm-hmm. I can't, uh, this, this door uh, is opening. is not something that happens to everybody. Right. And, uh, and so I said yes. And uh, I think Stevie had to go play. Uh, the Star Spangled Banner at the Houston Astros okay. uh, baseball opener. Yeah. And then I went back to the studio that uh, weekend, yeah. and we finished the record. So your uh, grand total of studio time on that record was like four days or something? Yeah, four days. Yeah. We went and played um, a free show, a show for a radio station in Dallas for about 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. Next night we played the Chicago Fest uh, for about 75,000 people. And we we uh, flew to Montro to play right. the '85 Montro show, which was my third show in the band. Holy shit! So I man. just was. Brent, when, I mean, that that uh, record has got a lot of that show's got a lot of airplay. But it was. Yeah. I have to realize that was my third show with the band. Oh my god! And uh, I thought I would just be playing the songs we cut in the studio. You know, uh, uh, just right now we're going to bring the keyboard player, uh, our, new, our keyboard player who played on this new record. But no, he wanted me, Stevie wanted me to play it on everything. everything. So I was just learning all the rest of the songs, as, as all in uh, A flat and E flat, e, exactly. <laughs> and um, so, but I but I loved it. And uh, and uh, how did the band react? Like Tommy and Chris react to having another guy all of a sudden that's like filling up a lot of sonic space. That you know that that's a that's a great question. And 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 because they're used to just honing in on everything that Stevie did. Yeah. Okay, so what happens with Stevie when there's another guy there? Well, they can hone in on what I'm doing. Uh, the rhythm section has a direction. Stevie doesn't have to play as much. He can concentrate more on his singing, and uh, and uh, and so everybody was happy. You know, Steve, he doesn't have to keep things. Stevie doesn't have to keep everything going all right. the time. Right. So was he kind of learning to ease back then on all he that? He was. He okay. was really. He he figured out how to do it immediately, and the band loved it, especially because oh, okay. when Stevie was solo, it. There wasn't anything going on, right? You know, so now all of a sudden there's a little focus of yeah. of groove yeah. behind his solo, uh-huh. and so he loved it. The, the rhythm session loved it. Yeah. They they were so welcoming and so wonderful. Oh, that's so, cool. So it worked out great. And so and you guys clicked and got along really well. Immediately really clicked, got along great, and uh, stayed with them for five years. And the touring schedule was nuts. Uh, it was, was it, it was uh, not that different than uh, as a kid, like somebody that like was aware of you guys, but it was like pre-internet days. You were the first. I mentioned that you were the first concert I ever saw in '86. I guess that was. I mean, it seemed to me like you were coming through Vancouver a couple times a year, which means you must have been like around North America constantly. Yeah, we played all. We played every state in the union. We played Canada. We played Europe. We went to Australia. Um, um, so, um, it was, it was a busy schedule. Yeah. Yeah. And how are things like, I know also like right around that time that led to the live album, but also like things were pretty messed up for those guys, right? Like they, they hit a point where they weren't functioning particularly well. Cause I know that whole thing, like they had to like really dry out for a while. Like, was that, 
affecting the music and stuff at all? Or were they holding no, it together? No, uh, there was some alcoholism. There was some uh, drug issues. Uh, uh, non-sleeping issues was the worst thing. Mm. Um, but in my memory, in my recollection, and I've thought about it quite a bit, I'm thinking, did the shows, did a single show suffer? Mm-hmm. Not till the very end. Okay. Until the very end, when, when he fell in England, oh. that was bad. You know, like off the stage We had to uh, take him to the doctor. Oh. You know, he couldn't do the show. Yeah. There was one other show where I felt like he was uh, too messed up to really uh, play his height his, his, uh, to his ability. Mm-hmm. But we got through that, too. That's not bad, actually, considering like how, no, I mean, I don't know if some of that stuff was probably embellished a bit, but there was a lot of like pretty heavy. Pretty much years of abuse. abuse and uh, yeah. and uh, it was, it was, you know, you can only do that that stuff for so long yeah. and then, then it starts to, it starts to get to you. And uh, some people have, uh, have never quit it and have done it all their lives. And, yeah. and, but for these guys, the, the, the amount of, of abuse that was going on, they needed to quit. Right. And so when they did, so th- was it, that kind of the thing? Like that concert in England was like, we can't yeah, keep this yeah, shit. Yeah, that, that was it. We canceled the rest of the tour. Oh. Um, uh, rehab. Yeah. Uh, quitting everything. Yeah. Uh, no, no guests backstage. No drinking backstage. You know, uh, how big of a gap was there where there where the shows? Were I want to say it was probably. Two months, oh, something it? like two or three months, oh, uh, shit. and then you were right back out. And uh, then we wrote a bunch of songs for In Step, yeah, and uh, and we wanted to go tour that, record that, and uh, and then tour it. And uh, uh, we liked those songs, and uh, yeah. And I wanted right. to ask you about Live Alive too, because I heard a funny thing about that where um, I know it was pulled from maybe not that many shows, like three or four shows or something, but that the in the reviews that I've read of it they keep referring to that album being very overdubbed in the studio. Do you remember, was, was that not a live album or what was, are those just weird stories about that record or is that a live record? Uh, it's a live record, but there were a lot of overdubs. Okay. Was that just like and it was key obsession or what was the deal? It was a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, uh, that was sort of, uh, um, uh, you know, I'd like to say I have a fantastic recollection of that of that time of that record. Uh, I know we we cut it a couple days at the Austin Opera House, and uh, I don't think I overdubbed anything. Mm-hmm. Stevie did some of his vocals again. He was having a hard time singing. Oh, okay, and uh, in order to and the fact is that the guitar was bleeding into the vocal mics, right? And so he couldn't fix his singing without fixing some of the guitar stuff. Okay, that was the deal. And so he was actually doing that. Like overdubbing his own guitar stuff on the live, huh? Some of it is overdubbed. Yeah. When you hear that, does that reflect the band at that time, or does that kind of get ruined by the fact that it was kind of doctored and not a live thing? As it, much? it was what it was. Yeah. You so, know, we have enough. There's enough live. There's enough fantastic live footage of yeah, us man. of us around. Yeah. Uh, where I mean, about in, it in those like days, you, you guys were days, so killer. It, it was band. a live record. It was the only chance people had to hear a live record. Right. Now there's probably yeah. fifty Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble live concerts on YouTube. Yeah. 
You know, you could hear us. If, uh, some of the sound is not great, but you, uh, our video is not great, but you can. Uh, but there's uh, uh, untold mm-hmm. opportunities to hear that band. But why wouldn't you have just gone and recorded some more shows? Because like clearly you had great nights, or like probably better nights than those nights, right? That's a good question. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> to the which answer. there is no answer. I, I don't know the answer <laughs> to that, and uh, that's that's not the first time that question has been brought up. Okay. Uh, so in step Including comes up, by us at the time. Yeah, right. I bet. <laughs> when in step comes up, that's like a whole different level of. It seems like a f- more. Not that the other records were unfocused or anything, but like there's parts that are intricately worked out, like crossfire and tightrope and things like that, where like you're playing bass riffs on the organ and piano parts. And there's, it's a different level of things going on on that record. Was that like, did you guys do a lot of planning and pre-production and stuff or how was that done we did uh we did uh uh stevie went up and and wrote a bunch of the songs with uh doyle bramhall who was who was his main main writer yeah uh and uh tommy and chris and i got together with this guy bill carter and his wife ruth Uh and we started trying to write our own songs for the uh for the record we came with Tommy came up with his riff for Crossfire, uh-huh. and I thought, well, maybe it would sound kind of cool. We thought it would be an R and B song, you know, kind right. of like a Sam and Dave tune or something yeah. like that. You know, maybe it'd be cool if I jumped on the jumped on the low end of the piano with it to kind of give it that uh, <clears throat> you don't know like I know kind of right. kind of thing. You know, uh-huh. Peter Gunn, you got to okay. kind of you know double double in the bottom end. He liked that idea, uh-huh. and so we wrote this song uh, Crossfire. Wicked. Uh, Stevie wasn't there. Uh, No, uh, uh, Bill sang it, and uh, he and his wife wrote the lyrics. And uh, uh, oh, I didn't realize that that was you guys wrote that song. Yeah. Okay. And we showed it to Stevie. Yeah. I wasn't sure. It it was such a departure from the other stuff. Yeah. Wasn't sure if he was going to like it or not. But the first time we played it, he worked it up. The first time we played it, people just loved it. Yeah. You know, and and uh, and so we had to play it all the time. Ah, wicked. That was my. That's my favorite uh, record. Is the In Step record. I. I, It's killer. uh, Yeah. And we just labored over it. You did. So what was the process like? How long would you say you spent? Well, we started. Started out, uh, started out that record in New York, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, we tried to try to get it going up there at the uh, uh, Electric Ladyland, and it didn't really yeah. work out. So we moved to Memphis, and started uh, again. Started again. Had a problem down there with the uh, with the hum on the guitar because we wanted to hook up about eighteen <laughs> guitar amps. You know, so why is it humming? Uh, <laughs> I wonder. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, so finally got that worked out, uh, uh, and then he would uh, we would go so, in. So for a guy that and, would have, and this is this is his first studio project after becoming sober, right? So there's some nervousness, probably. There is a lot of nervousness. They're playing the playing songs that none of us had played before, right? Um, working up the arrangements. So we would play a song like "The House Is Rocking." Yeah, simple song, right? Yeah, we must have played that song 25 times in a row. Wow. Over and over again, Ooh. you know, until uh, you know he was Stevie was just completely happy with his guitar rig and everything. You know, the, everything was nothing was distorting or the wrong way, and uh, okay. he would stick his head in, in this amp and that amp to oh see if God. it was sounding all right. Let's do it again, yeah. and uh, we worked out this solo, this little solo thing. Yeah, and that's one that had the piano solo, and I, uh, for me. Uh, I got tired of playing different solos all the time, so I just, after about five times through, I just ended up with the solo that was on there. 
Okay, I wondered about that because that's yeah. like one of the most memorable rock and roll piano solos there is. Like you know, like that and like Jessica to me are like the most hummable, memorable solos. I wondered if that was something that you just I finally just had to had to stick with something. <laughs> right. You know, so I just and so we 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 got that, and then I've played it another twenty times, and and uh, every, so would the would that final recorded version be a live performance, or was that cobbled together from a whole bunch of different takes? Or no, no, that was a performance. That was a lot. Everything on there was a performance. Everything. There was okay. hardly any overdubbing. It, anything anything that was that was. Fixed. There was hardly anything fixed. Right. There were things to be that would be added. Okay. For example, horns. Horns. Okay. And uh, uh, I don't know if there's any. I don't think there's any percussion on anything. I don't. Think or so. any singers on anything. I don't think so. Yeah. No. It was just every every he wanted to. He played them all until we what got a about, performance. Uh, what's the instrumental? Um, Riviera Paradise. Uh, on that one, I think there's piano and organ. So would you have played those? It would have been. Yeah. That would have been. My recollection is that it was overdubbed, but it okay. could have been. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. Because that's another like extremely memorable piano solo. That uh, that particular track uh, uh, is the only one on the record that we didn't play 25 times. We played that song once. Really? Yeah, that was it. Really? Uh, we had just and, finished. And, we just finished playing some loud raucous thing. I don't know if it was tightrope or, yeah. or or the house is rocking or something. Yeah. it wasn't the house is rocking. But uh, all of a sudden, Stevie says, "Well, I'm, let's go ahead and play Riviera Paradise now." So you knew the song. We'd worked it up. Yeah, we'd okay. we'd worked it up in rehearsal. Yeah, and um, the turned the lights down low, counted off and played it. Beautiful. The headphones were all wrong. You know, Chris really? could hardly hear himself. He's and, uh, he's playing loud on that song, considering like that it's a quiet song. Like he's laying into it. Yeah, so, so because I guess his headphones were wrong. Okay, and um, <laughs> and it ended up being what it was. And I, that's the song. I always thought that's the song that would be covered by other people. Riviera really? Paradise. Yeah, it's such a beautiful song. It is. Yeah. And I thought it would be used for movies. We uh, Stevie wrote it as thought of it as a movie soundtrack song. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I that. that, that's what I thought it would be used for. Huh. Played it once, and that was it. I was one little. Wow. That's the song. There was one little flub on the piano solo. I went back and and attempted to fix it. And ended up with something that that was workable. Oh, really? Okay. So there's like one little bump one there. little bump there. Yeah, and that would have all been done analog, right? This is pre-digital. Yeah. This is done in. You probably recorded it in '89, right? '89. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we toured all those songs, and uh, yeah, that we, we started doing the uh, the co-tours after that. The, the Jeff Beck and us, Joe and, Cocker. And, uh, I saw that. Greg Allman and us, Joe Cocker and us, Jeff Beck, and um, yeah, yeah, and those, and those, those were really cool. We enjoyed all that. Yeah, I saw that show in Vancouver. Yeah, it was Jeff great. Healy was on that one too. Jeff Healy, oh, yeah. I love that guy. Yeah, um, and uh, and so that would have gone right up to the end, like the last right when the last show uh, when Stevie uh, got killed on the uh, in the helicopter. Uh, obviously, that was the end of uh, the end of Steve Rave on a double trouble and uh, totally tragic for us. We had no idea what would happen to any of us and felt like basically our our life is over. And uh, um, do you have distinct memories with that last show? Like that was in Colorado or something. The last show uh, was it was Alpine Valley, uh-huh. and that was an Eric Clapton show. Oh right, okay. Alpine Valley, Wisconsin. And Jimmy was there, and Jimmy was Robert there, Cray. Robert Cray, and uh, I think Buddy Guy was there too. Right, and so yeah, that was a great night. Yeah, and so after after that, and you like what 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 went through your head after all that? Well, it was it was 
devastating to all of us. And we went home, and first we had to call all our family and tell them we weren't dead because uh, the press had reported that the band went down. Yep, I remember and, hearing uh, Eric Clapton had gone down as and, well. Like uh, misinformation so that lot, was yeah. that was messed up. Then I'm here. I'm in Austin. My marriage is breaking up once again. I've, I don't have a gig. Uh, I, I did, tried, did some sessions for a little while. Um, uh, joined uh, Joe Ely again mm. and did a, did a run with him. It, was, it wasn't really satisfying, and it didn't feel right for me to be in Austin uh, anymore. It, it felt, like, like, it felt were... like I was a ghost in that town. Right. So um, I got the opportunity, or, or this producer asked me to, the guy who had recorded Joe Ely, a guy named Tony Brown, lives here in Nashville, uh, asked me if I was would ever consider moving to Nashville. Oh, okay. And he said, "Man, if you you get up the way uh, the way you play, man, you you'll be making tons of money up here in Nashville." Yeah. He says, "Yeah, I'll use you on everything." Yeah. And um, so I said, uh, I, "I had an opportunity soon after that to uh, join a guy named Hal Ketchum uh-huh. and move to Nashville." Okay. And uh, sold my house in Austin, moved up here. Well. Hal fired me after about a month. Why? And uh, uh, Tony Brown, the producer, used me, did use me on a, on a record, but it was 10 years after I moved up there. <laughs> 10 years. What an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, uh, so I was, I was living in Nashville just uh, wondering what in the world I was going to do. I'd met this guy, Mike, Han- were- Mike Henderson, who played at the Bluebird every Monday yeah. night. And I would go over and sit in with him. And at that time, Al Cooper was playing keyboards with Mike. Really? And uh, Mike didn't like Al. Al would do stuff. They would play, be playing a slow blues, and he'd give it to Al to play a solo, and Al would go to on the keyboard and find a steel guitar sample or something like that <laughs> and and play it. get this <laughs> wacky sound. On, it just, just irked Mike Henderson to no I, end. I can imagine. So I would, I would come over, go over and sit in, and he, he liked the way I played. Yeah. So they fired Al, hired me. Okay. But was your reputation as a keyboard player not, were you not working constantly? I, I got a few sessions. Uh, 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 it took a little while to get started here in Nashville. I, I started working with Mike. I started working with this guy, Gary Nicholson, who's a yeah. famous songwriter. Uh, I guess about a year or so uh, in Nashville, I, I called up my friend Leroy Parnell yeah. and uh, went on the road with him Okay, uh, for a couple of years. And uh, and. Was getting quite a bit of quite a bit of studio work at, at that yeah. point. I, and did you enjoy? The I played. Studio? I played on a bunch of songs with Leroy, uh, a bunch of hits that he made, and yeah. that kind of put me on the map. Right. As far as playing that country music, even in the last fifteen years, you've played on a, a staggering amount of albums. So I've, I've played on quite a few records up here. The uh, most notably, probably, is the. Um, Brooks and Dunn stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. where we had the song of the year that featured the B3 with me playing it. And uh, right. I think it was a song called I Believe or Just Believe. Okay. How do you like doing that country session stuff? Like, is it. You know, these musicians, the musicians you, here in Nashville are just amazing. They are. They can, it seems like they can play anything. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like they're so good and they're so fast that they speed through things and, and rather than grasping. The, the greatness of a song just find a thing that they can play on it and they play it right and there's that's the song right i would love it if if we could spend a little bit more time sometimes yeah on a song i totally understand what you're saying about that 
So uh, here I am in Nashville uh, t- almost 25 years later. I had a nice run as a, as a Nashville studio musician. I'm still doing some studio work. Yeah. Has it slowed down a bit in the last few it years? It has slowed down quite a bit. And I uh-huh. took a road gig uh, with a, uh, another guitar player, a guy, guy by the name of Joe Bonamassa. Indeed, he did, yeah. And, uh, so you're back out? Like, now you? I'm back on the road again. We've, uh, we've done, a, it, Joe likes to do these live performance DVDs, and right. we've done several of them. We yeah. did uh, Radio big, City Music Hall. And, huge, big productions. And, uh, uh, Red Rocks a couple times, right. uh, Red Rocks, and then the Greek Theater, and yeah. then we did one over in England someplace, and uh, okay. another one at um, the uh, Sydney Opera House in Australia. In fact, I'm getting ready to go in the studio uh, day after tomorrow. We're doing it, we're making a, a new Joe record, so oh, okay. I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, are you touring a lot with him? Is that is that like a? We do about a hundred and between 105, 110 shows a year. That's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. And are you enjoying being out there that much again, or is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, mi- cool. I miss the traveling. Uh-huh. I-, I like traveling. Yeah. And uh, and the band is good. We have Michael, Michael Rhodes, Rhodes on bass, uh, Anton Fig on drums. Really? And uh, uh, wow. Yeah. And then uh, a couple of uh, uh, terrific horn players, uh, Lee Thornburg and uh, Polly Sarah. Lee has been around forever. He's played with Tower of Power. And, okay. And he, before that, he was with... Uh, uh, Wayne Cochran and the CC Riders. Really? If you remember that from back in Florida, back yeah. in, when I lived in Florida, oh, wow. they were they were the, they were the stuff. Okay. Do you ever see Dickie Betts or anything these days? Like, are you guys still pals after all these years? Uh, we've kind of kind of uh, lost touch with each other. Yeah. Wow. So that kind of brings you up to date on uh, on me. That is awesome, man. Well, thanks um, for doing this, man. That's amazing to hear all your stories ah my pleasure glad to do it and i'm just such a fan of your playing and and what you do as a musician it's uh, great to have you here well steve i feel like i'm I'm just the luckiest guy i got to work with all these (laughs) great guys throughout my my career you know i've been doing this for over 50 years and uh and i still love doing it so yeah i feel like a lucky guy all right that was my conversation with reese winans thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed it um Feel free to reach out to me and say hello via the website at stevedawson.ca and we'll see you next week for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.